Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Welcome, guys, to College Life. We are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully you're already in Matthew 7. But man, we are starting with the most quoted verse in all of the Bible. How many times have you guys heard the phrase, judge not that you, that you be not judged, right? Or only God can judge me, right? Using this as kind of the, the most quoted passages that we really see in the entire Bible by the secular world. Not necessarily always by Christians themselves, but by the secular world. It's kind of become this anthem for hyper-individualism. Essentially, by saying this, it's been, become used so commonly that it gives credence to, the eye that one, credence to the idea that one's actions are excused from critique or rebuking. For an unbeliever quoting this verse to a believer, it can be paralyzing, especially if we don't know what this verse actually means, right? And so... What we are told is essentially this idea of you don't have any right to tell me I'm wrong. And this line of thinking can kind of lead to a host of of social issues, especially when it comes to a decision point on making a moral judgment of whether or not something is right or something is wrong. Throughout Scripture, the authors, guided along by the Holy Spirit, define God's moral truth. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles and Jesus They rebuke the religious, and they call the sinners to repent. How can any of this be done without ever making a judgment? Could it be that Jesus is saying something other than what the secular world believes about this verse? One thing that we must do when we study Scripture is to try our best to determine the intended meaning. Only then can we determine its implications for today. Whenever we seek to determine the intended meaning, we look at what is around the verse, what is often known as the context. We say that context is king. Context is king. And we say that because context rules the meaning or it determines what something means. Now in Matthew 6, just a chapter before, Jesus condemns hypocrisy when it comes to giving to the needy, to prayer, to fasting. Essentially, don't do it for show, but do it for the right reasons. And in the following verses, Jesus is going to condemn judgment without self-examination. So what really is Jesus condemning here when he says, judge not? Well, I think he's condemning something we all struggle with, something we all have to handle, something we all have to reckon with, and that's this feeling of being superior, self-righteous, or hypocritical. This attitude towards someone else's sin. And it's easy to do, to be honest, right? Oftentimes, our first reaction to someone else's sin is not mercy, is not care, is not reflection on our own sin, but instead it can be cruelty, it can be a judgmental attitude, and maybe even revenge or vindictiveness towards that person. But Paul in Romans explains, after listing a host of sin, that we are without excuse. He says in Romans 2.1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. I've got it up on the screen here. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The goal is we are all guilty. The goal here today is to see that we have selfishness within us that is deeply rooted. We don't remove that by self-help, by journaling or exercise, but we root out pride by remembering the great need which led to our salvation. We must remember God's mercy toward our own sin so that we in turn can be merciful toward other people. And we do that by recognizing that a disciple's relationships are selfless. And how we do that is when we are relating to our brothers and relating to our Father. Those are going to be the two categories that we look at today. Number one, relating to our brothers, and number two, relating to our Father. The text we're looking at today continues Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' longest discourse. And essentially, he teaches what a disciple looks like or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. What do they look like? He gives us the picture, and each week we have been challenged, confronted with our own sin, our own lack of righteousness, and need for Jesus. And this week is no different, right? The calling is high. Each week, every single week, we have seen something, whether it's divorce, the view of divorce, how we pray, how we deal with our anger, lust, fasting, prayer, anxiety, what we value, what God values. Each week we have been challenged, and today is going to be no different. Today we're going to be looking at our relationships and our relationship to our brothers and our relationship to our Father. So let's read the first section in verses 1 through 6, talking about our relationship with our brothers. Verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So the relationship we should consider first is how we relate to our Brothers. When we look at this idea of relating to our brothers, what I'm referring to is our brothers and sisters of humanity. Okay, Every single person you have ever interacted with is a brother or sister in this common bond. That you were made in the image of Christ. That you have equal value, not based on how you look, what you've done, what's been done to you. Any experience that you've had, you are equal in value to every, every single human you've ever met. Whether that's the president or the person that's homeless on the side of the road, whether that's the person that you despise, the person that's living overseas, a person of another religion, they all have equal value. And because of that, the way in which we treat people is not based on what they've done, but based on who they are. They are our brothers in the sense that we are all image bearers. And so how we treat people is important. Now, the passage begins with the command of Jesus to judge not. Judge not. And looking at the whole counsel of Jesus' teachings, it's clear that he's not forbidding all judgments, but instead is prohibiting hasty or habitual condemnation. We've all met that person who is quick to point out faults, right? Or quick to say that's just who they are, or that's just what they do. 
See, in another gospel account, this is what Jesus says. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. John 7, 24. Later in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In Matthew 18, the classic passage on church discipline or conflict resolution, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. That's Matthew 18, 15. All of these passages require judgment to determine if a brother has sinned. We should judge not based on outward appearances, quickly or out of habit, but rather by looking at God's revealed moral righteousness. By looking at God's revealed moral righteousness. Yet, here's something that we must understand. When we do make judgments, we must understand that we invite God's divine judgment. The second clause of this off-quoted verse, judge not lest you be judged, is what we consider a divine passage. Whenever the subject is not necessarily indicated, the agent of this judgment, the one who is doing it here, is actually God himself. So when a person judges another person, they in a sense invite God to judge themselves. That is what Jesus warns in the following verse in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Judging in a self-righteous, haughty way forgets the mercy by which we have been forgiven. If we ever judge without first self-examining our own self, self-examining our own hearts, we can become just like the Pharisees. If the solution to our sin is ever changing someone else's behavior, then we become like the Pharisees. Jesus judged the Pharisees. He critiqued them. He called them hypocritical. He called them blind guides. He called them serpents. He called them whitewashed tombs. The reality is, unfortunately, we are often more like the Pharisees than we are like Jesus. And I think that's because often what we like to do is magnify the sin of others while we minimize our own sin. Maybe you can relate to that. If you ever have roommates, this passage might be a little convicting. If you've ever been in a romantic relationship, this passage might be a little convicting. If you've ever had a brother or sister, this passage might be a little convicting. If you're a human and if you've ever had a relationship with another human, this passage might be a little convicting. And that's because whenever we have relationships with other people, it's a lot easier to see the sin in other people's lives than it is to see our own sin. Because what do we do with our own sin? We minimize. We ignore. We compare. We compensate. This is what we often do with our own sin. But what does Jesus encourage us to do with our sin instead? What does he instead tell us to do? He encourages us to self-examine instead. Psalm 32 describes the heart of the sinner whose sin is present in their heart and mind. He's not quiet. He confesses and he praises God for his forgiveness. See what the psalmist says about his sin. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Have you ever felt that way in your sin? Kept it hidden? Kept it silent where it felt like your bones wasted away? Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. I, encouraged my, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity, the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Our sin should be so big in our life that we can do nothing but turn to God and seek His mercy. And I don't say that in that we focus and, and hyperfixate on our sin, but that when we recognize our sin, when we look at our sin, when we truly open the box and examine what is in our heart, it reminds us of how great a mercy we have received. It reminds us of the great love that God had for us, that He sent His own Son to die on the cross in our place. That our sin was so, so disgusting and evil that we actually have to confront it. And when we do, we see that God's response is not turning you away, but is receiving you with love. This is, this is true, friends. A person who has received mercy and who has recognized mercy is much more prepared to give mercy, right? A person who has received mercy is much better prepared to give mercy. And when we examine our log, the log in our own eye, it becomes clear why Jesus said, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We are not righteous, so we should not act like it when confronting sinfulness and wrongdoing. A few years ago, I became a homeowner, and with that becomes all the joys of everything breaking. And when everything breaks, you just have to fix it. I've learned so many skills and bought so many tools over the past few years, but about eight months ago, I really started taking seriously my lawn. Okay, I know you're thinking, wow, what a dad. But really, I, I needed to take care of my lawn. I just kind of like mowed it, and just like weeded it, and then it just kind of became gross. And so there were weeds just infested in my, in my lawn. And this was like early spring when I was like, okay, I gotta do something about it. So I started researching, I became an expert. I watched so many YouTube videos, okay? Watched a ton, because I realized that there was a major problem in my yard. By the time that I had first started killing off the weeds, there were just brown spots and dead, dirt just in my lawn and I was like wow I needed to take care of my yard and so I became an expert realizing you know what kind of seed I needed to use what fertilizer all the chemicals the right time of the year when to do x y and z and I really had to examine my own yard then a couple of weeks ago I looked outside and noticed that one of my neighbor's yards was going through the exact same thing that my yard was going through and so I called him up, I texted him, I said, hey, I've got some chemicals, I noticed this, could I help and spray this, spray this for you to help you out? He was like, yeah, absolutely, but don't worry about it. 
But, you know, I, it was because I had examined my own yard, identified the problem, and turned away from the old way of doing things that I could actually help my neighbor and his yard. And when we examine our own yard, we are better equipped to help others with theirs. And notice the spirit, how I approached my neighbor. You know, I didn't have a yard that was fully overgrown when I did this. I didn't say, hey, I've got it all figured out. But I recognized that I didn't have it all together, right? It was with genuine care since I had seen the damage done that came to my own yard. And this is the same when it comes to dealing with people. We don't do it out of superiority. We, we don't confront people out of superiority. We confront them because we recognize that I'm a sinner too. I'm a sinner too in need of God's mercy. That's how we should approach people. <clears throat> Finally, Jesus ends this section with instructive irony. This is often a confusing passage after Jesus just spends five verses talking about don't have a judgmental attitude. He says, don't give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, some take this as kind of a counterpoint to verses, the first five verses saying basically, while a critical spirit is wrong, judgments are essential. But it seems to me as if Jesus is warning with irony. And it's this idea of essentially after forbidding judgment, like I just have a hard time thinking that, okay, now we should label people pigs and dogs. It just doesn't really track with me. And I think it's more likely that what Jesus is saying here, that if you view your wisdom and you view your judgments as pearls or something holy, and yet you view people as dogs or pigs, how is that truth going to be delivered? It's going to be delivered with condescension. It's going to be delivered despising that person. So we shouldn't be surprised when we deliver rebuking in such a way that they trample over our rebuke or they turn and attack us. I think what Jesus is doing is continuing this idea using irony, basically saying we should never condescend or despise another person looking at them with superiority. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters made in the image of God. So let's treat one another as such. It matters how we relate to our brothers. Okay, so let's talk about this idea at our tables. I've got three questions for you. Number one, read the passages I mentioned earlier. What do these indicate about making judgment? How does knowing God's righteousness help us determine right from wrong? Number two, the refrain, only God can judge me, is a common one. While it is true we should not be judgmental, that does not mean we do not make judgments on what is good and what is evil. Read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2. How does Paul encourage the church specifically to address the evil committed by one of its members? Any insight there? And number three, mercy is one of God's characteristics. How have you experienced God's mercy in your own life? And who is someone God is leading you to show mercy toward this week? It could be a family member, a friend, a roommate, someone you know. But let's talk about this for the next 10 minutes or so. All right, guys, hope you had some good conversation at your tables. We're going to wrap up here. Man, I just want to let you guys know how happy I am you guys are here this morning. Um, 
to be able to gather together. I know it's that point in the semester where maybe some of you guys have had really tough weeks, had really tough semesters. I don't know what's happened in your life up in this point. I don't know what you've done or what's been done to you, but I'm glad you're here to gather with God's people, to open his word, to talk about it with one another. You know, and it might just be for this reminder, the second half of this message, we're just gonna talk about God's love. And we're gonna talk about how much he loves us. And I know that can be sometimes really hard to reconcile with what's happening at the, in the world. I mean, we just can look at what's happening in the Middle East right now and be just questioning. Uh, there might be something happening in your own life where you could be questioning God's love for you. Uh, but I want you to know that God loves us. God loves us. And I want to open with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He writes a book called The Problem of Pain. And in it, he's got an entire chapter devoted to divine goodness. Okay? And so I want to read it for us. It says, When Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were not made primarily that we may love God, that we were made for that too, but that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest well-pleased. To ask that God's love should be content with us just as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. What we would here and now call our happiness is not the end that God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as he can love without impediment, we shall, in fact, be happy. God loves us, and because he loves us, he desires our holiness. He desires good things for his children. Yet what we think is good and what God knows is good are sometimes at odds with each other, aren't they? My question for you as we wrap up today is, do you believe that God loves you? Do you dwell on the fact that those who are in Christ have been transformed from children of wrath to children of the King. Have you ever just thought about that? That we have become adopted as sons of God. Our Father is good. So how do we relate to the Father? That's what our next section is going to be about. In verses 7 through 11, this is what Jesus describes it as. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So it's clear that the way that we relate to the Father is connected to two things. Connected to two things. How we talk to him and how we view him. A relationship with the Father is connected to two main ideas, how we talk to Him and how we view Him. Ask, seek, knock, all in the present tense. We should talk to our Father every day. We should talk to our Father regularly. Just as a child talks to his or her earthly father, Jesus tells us why. Even when fathers are sinful, typically... They still give their kids good gifts. But God, who is good, completely good, the context for good, gives us better gifts. We should talk to him always. We should view him as loving. Now, I'm not foolish enough to think that everyone in here has a great relationship with their father or even has a father. I don't know everyone's story. But I know this. That even if you had an amazing father, even if he loved you and lavished you with good gifts, your heavenly father is better. Even if you had a poor father, even if you didn't have a father, and you're left in this hole in your heart where you feel like you don't know what a father's love is like, your heavenly father, he can heal those hurts and he can fill and satisfy those holes in your heart. And I know that and I can say that with confidence because of what Jesus says about his father. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? As Lewis said earlier, our father labors to make us lovable. That despite our sin, despite our wrongdoing, our rebellion against God, he has offered his own son so that we can become the righteousness of God, so that we might be transformed from children of wrath to children of the King. That is miraculous. That is a miracle. But that is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, that we have been adopted into this kingdom. This section ends after prayer toward our Heavenly Father with a command. It says in verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So this is what's often known as the golden rule. Maybe your parents told you this, or maybe your friends did. And it's unequivocally, without a doubt, a relational command. We've been talking about relationships all today and how disciples' relationships are selfless and how we relate to our brothers and relate to our Father. Lastly, this command is how we relate to everyone. Its scope is un limited. In this command, Jesus basically tells us what the duty of justice is. If ever you need a simple explanation on how to treat all people, Jesus gives us it here. And it comes back to the core of the issue that we've been facing today, pride and self-righteousness. I hope after looking at today's passage, we can see that a disciple's relationship should be selfish and we look selfless and we looked at two big relationships our relationship to our brothers and our relationship to our father and in doing so we concluded 
that because of God's mercy to us, because of his great love for us, we should show that same love and that same mercy to others. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes that for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Say it with me, my friends. To do what? Good works. Good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. We are merciful not because we want to, not because we think it's a good idea, but because that is what God created us in Christ Jesus to do, to be merciful just as God is merciful. We are made in his image. How can we live out that image today? And God saves us. He just doesn't save us from something. He saves us to something, to live a life that is pleasing to him, that glorifies him every single day. He saves us to something, a purpose. That purpose is to live our lives by showing mercy this week, every day, every year. Let's do it together, friends. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this group and how you have guided us here today, how you've brought us into these doors. I pray that you would be glorified in our lives that you would show us how to be merciful to those who it's difficult to be merciful toward. Lord, remind us of the mercy that we've been given. Remind us of the love in which you've shown us. Lord, I pray that we would not look at the world's view of love and let that shape what we think love is, but that we would look at what you did on the cross in Jesus Christ. You sent your own son to die in our place so that we might be restored back to right relationship with you. Lord, I pray that our lives would reflect the mercy that we've received, that we might be merciful towards others. Lord, we know that that's only possible by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So I pray that we wouldn't quench the Spirit, but that we would allow Him to work in us and work through us. Thank you so much for this day, for the gathering of your people. I pray that we would glorify you with our words, our speech, with our actions toward one another. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.